You are listening to I Doubt It with me, your host, Jesse Dolliman, a podcast dedicated to free-thinking discussion, ideas, skepticism, but most importantly, a good time. Welcome to the show. This is I Doubt It. I'm Jesse Dollimore. Sitting across from me is my co-host, Brittany Page. Hello, everybody. And this is I Doubt It, which I'm sure has been said many times already since the music started. <laughs> uh, episode 12. Episode 12. Want to get the housekeeping out of the way. We still want to twist your arm to rate and review us on iTunes. That kind of keeps us in the... New and noteworthy section of uh, iTunes, which obviously is going to elicit a lot more response from randoms like you. <laughs> Get at us at 657-464-7609. Leave us a voicemail at that number and we will incorporate you into the show. Uh, hit us on Twitter, uh, at Dollamore, at Brittany E. Page. And there's another one out there, at I Doubt It Podcast, but I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with that account. I just... Uh, Wanted to get it locked in before somebody snagged it. Because, you know, there's a lot of I Doubt It podcasts out there. Mm, there are. <laughs> you never um, know. Also, I would like to encourage you to like the Facebook page. Um, that is a great way to see links and discuss the different stories that we talk about on the show. So, episode 12. That is, it's official. We are actually a podcast. 12 episodes there's you know when i when i first started uh looking into doing this i did a lot of research on the internet i did a lot of um sifting through many many podcasts and there's there's a lot of dead podcasts out there it seems there's a lot of podcasts with two or three episodes and then maybe another one several months later but that they just they lost weird yeah i don't know they lost interest or didn't do enough didn't realize it was going to be really a labor of love and a lot of time invested. Yeah. There's a lot of reading bullshit on the internet <laughs> that goes into uh, this humble little show. And I think a lot of people get tired of it, but it's, you know, episode 12, we're the real deal. Another, another part of uh, when I was looking into to doing this, there's, there's a lot of resources out there. Well, there's a few major resources out there and I'm not going to name names, but they talk about how to build an audience and who to, you know, you don't want to ruffle any feathers and you talk about what you know. And, but a lot of it's about how not to offend and kind of this weird milk toast, how to be middle of the road. And how are you going to, how are you going to ever reach anybody if you're not saying anything with any, I don't want to say gravitas, but with any, any guts you got to have some balls if you're going to say something and make a statement i wouldn't what do you think well if you're constantly trying to be middle of the road and ugh, not stepping on people's toes you're not being true to yourself who's yeah. like that i mean people have opinions that's what we do we yeah. think about things critically and we develop opinions and we shouldn't be trying to like stifle free speech and act like oh we can't offend people we can't offend people because yeah it's it's definitely there's that odd 
bent toward not offending, which is a a weird concept in and of itself, offending someone. Well, because lately it means you're saying something different than what someone believes, or you're just being, you're, that's really what it comes down to. A difference of opinion is offensive nowadays. It's definitely a difference of opinion, but there's this, this weird ethos that's, it's out there in the ether right now that if, if, if I don't just disagree with you, but if I say, I think you're wrong, that that is offensive. Yeah. Because people hold are holding so tightly to these weird, not even weird, but they're holding so strongly to their tightly held beliefs that if you exhibit any disagreeing, any disagreeance at all, you're offending them. Yeah, which is almost comical, except it, for it's sad. Well, it, I think it can be both. <laughs> but what did, what did what did Stephen Fry say? Stephen Fry's quote on offending people is, quote, and I'm going to be quoting here. There's an F-bomb in here, so I'm just quoting. All right, so everybody? Those of, you, those of you who are keeping count, this doesn't count. Yes, because it's a quote. So Stephen Fry says, quote, It's now very common to hear people say, I'm rather offended by that, as if that gives them certain rights. It's actually nothing more than a whine. I find that offensive. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no reason to be respected as a phrase. I am offended by that. Well, so fucking what? <laughs> I love Stephen Fry. And of course, I can't do a British accent unless I'm doing Harry Potter so, characters. So fucking what? Yes. Except he's not. He's, for those of you who are scrambling to get to Google to find out who he is, he, if you've seen the Sherlock Holmes movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr., he plays Robert Downey Jr.'s brother, who walks around his house naked and is super eccentric and weird. Yes, but that's a that's a great, it's a great quote, because the other thing that comes along with being offended is people they will say that the, what their opinion is, and th- this typically happens on Facebook if there's a, any kind of intellectual disagreement or argument whatsoever. But people will state their opinion. You'll disagree, tell them that they're wrong or that you believe they're wrong, and then back it up with your opinion, and then they scream and rant and rave about how they have freedom of speech. Look, asshole, no one's trying to remove your freedom of speech. No one's claiming that you don't have the freedom of speech, but just because I disagree doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to voice your opinion. Well, in creating this hostile environment where... Enough times of disagreeing and receiving that kind of backlash. There's been times where I've been involved in discussions Mm -hmm. and I have not necessarily even said the person is wrong, but just offered a different opinion and, you know, provided facts to back up my opinion and cited things. And then I will be called a stupid bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that has happened to me. I don't know how many times that's happened to me. They, well, they resort to name calling. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. to create this hostile environment where we can't have disagreements, we can't have discussions. You know, if you're going to be talking about these things, any kind of thing where someone can disagree, you should expect that someone may come back and disagree with you. And that's okay. The only way we'll actually make any progress relative to solving our differences, solving these great questions that face us on a day-to-day basis in our world, is to discuss them. We can't all remain silent for fear of offending the other person. There, there has to be dialogue 
as tense as it might be, and as terse as the subject matter might be, we have to have dialogue to solve some of these issues. Yeah, and the phrase, I'm offended, or I'm entitled to my opinion and I have free speech. Well, you might be entitled to your opinion, but that doesn't mean that what you're saying needs to be treated as though it's factual or legitimate if it's not. You know, well, and, and you don't need to get offended by the fact you're wrong. It should actually be kind of nice that someone's helping you out. <laughs> so you don't look dumb next time you're saying something that's wrong. All this really brings me back to, if you remember several months ago, when the the wonderfully intelligent Phil Robertson, mm. not Pat Robertson, Phil, apparently all Robinson, Robertsons are assholes. Uh, Phil Robertson, the bearded duck dynasty douchebag you like that yeah i, I don't, I I don't a, know what accent you were going for i wish i wish i had oh i was just that's my actual normal speaking voice oh okay yeah yeah uh this this voice here and this accent is put on oh okay the podcast voice Th this is my podcast voice <laughs> you made me lose my train of thought i oh, got sorry. it i got it so it brings me back to phil robertson when he did his little sermon he was actually preaching before a church and he said that you should find your girls to marry when they're 14 or so because they won't argue with you and they'll pick your ducks without having an opinion because they're merely children. And he met his wife when she was 14 and then married her when she was 16. So, you know, it just goes to show what his thing is. Anyway, now I digress because I have a lot of disdain for that human being. It brings me back because during all that, there was a lot of vitriol. There was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of very testy discussions that were going on on Facebook, especially hostile environments. Yeah, That's hostile. what was being created. And so what, and even hostility that, that I would admit to that I created because I was angry about it. Mm -hmm. It pissed me off, but there was this, your conservative people on one side who very much stood up for his right to say whatever he wanted to say. That's fine. Look, listen, I absolutely am a fan of the Constitution, and I believe in everyone's right to free speech. I believe in Westboro Baptist Church's right to free speech. I think that, and I believe that their their message is poison, but I, they do have the, the right to, to their speech. Right now on, uh, Arizona, on one of the Arizona University campuses, there's a guy holding a sign that says, you deserve to be raped. Hmm. And we didn't talk about this. Uh, who, I, who is that directed toward? Right, right. It's to women who are dressed, who are, you know, he believes scantily oh. clad. Oh. But anyway, he has that right. And actually, I'm proud of the university because they're allowing him to continue to do what he's doing. I would just walk up to that guy and Punch debate him. Punch him right in the face. No, I'd start debating him. That's what I love <laughs> to do to those people with those signs. So the message here is I, I don't disagree that he has the right to free speech, but in turn... I also have the right to free speech. Yes. Yeah, I've always tried to be a little more civil in my debates on Facebook and in other areas. Not so, in my nature. <laughs> so I don't go there. But even when I'm civil, it, it becomes a, a hostile environment. And it, it's very unfortunate because even when things are being discussed where there's not a clear right and wrong and it's just like, let's weigh in. And people automatically get defensive and the entitled did their opinion and all this. And everybody should be able to speak and not start talking about being offended, not start, I'm entitled to my opinion. All these things are reactionary and weird. 
I, I just don't really get how that is supposed to continue a productive conversation. And yeah. The way that people change is by having conversations about serious topics. I mean, that's the only, that's why there's presidential debates. That's why there's debates on the news between different sides. So it, it absolutely lends itself to, I mean, it really, it boils down to that with discussion and when we all practice our freedom of speech, it, it's going to resolve some of these differences and issues that we have. There are age-old questions and age-old quandaries that will never be resolved, I believe. Things that can't be proven, things that are just claims. Yeah, subjective topics. Sure, but, but when, with, when we do practice our freedom of speech together and not try to stifle one another by, oh, you disagree with me? I have the freedom of speech. If we stick on topic, that, that's really what's going to be... That's what's going to be best for everybody. Yeah. Well, and what does I'm offended even mean? I mean, like Stephen Fry says, when you start saying that, is it because you are being backed into a corner and you can't argue anymore? So you're just throwing up the I'm offended card because you don't know where to go next? I mean, what does it mean when people are saying that? It's, it's really a good question. And if you really think about it, try to describe to someone, and I guess this is a challenge for the audience, think to yourself, say it out loud, define what it means to be offended and how little meaning it has. Well, people say it all the time now. People are offended about everything. I can't remember the last time I felt offended. I've I've said it many times. I don't get offended. And usually it's kind of, I just, I kind of say it. But I don't know that I get offended because it doesn't, it has no meaning. Well, even when I'm talking about those situations I've been in where which really it was only two individuals that I debated with on Facebook that ended up calling me a stupid bitch as soon as I <laughs> was laying out an awesome argument that's what they came back with and even then I wasn't offended okay you are not someone that I'm gonna be offended by calling me a stupid right. bitch awesome if, if that's what you're gonna resort to then yeah I'm not gonna be offended by that I don't know not a worthy adversary <laughs> And not worthy of getting offended, I guess, is more important. Yeah. It's an odd thing. And I really, I would challenge everybody to to move forward and progress in this way that don't be so quick to, because it, it, I think it's an easy, it's a comfortable hammock that people f f uh, find themselves falling into. Yeah. This luxurious bed of, oh, offense. Yeah. When it's a cop-out because you shut off any intellectual you, you shut off from any discussion whatsoever once you're offended oh hands are up you're not listening anymore and typically you're not even giving back any discussion either once you're offended so exactly i would absolutely challenge everybody to divest themselves of offended and uh move on let's further the conversation because even when I can understand when people are offended, like those individuals who hold up signs, like the guy you just mentioned at Arizona State University, mm -hmm. or even at my school in Fullerton, they there was always a Christian individual who would hold up signs about how homosexuals are going to burn in hell. And That guy's been featured on many documentaries. I wish yeah. I knew it. We'll have to look up his name and have a talk about him, too. Yeah. There would always be a crowd of people around him, and... They would be saying, why are you here? You shouldn't be allowed to be here. People were signing petitions to make the school make him leave. And I walked straight up to him and asked him if he had heard about that homosexual study where they put the, the thing leaner. on his penis. The yeah. Truth <laughs> study. And I asked him what he thought would happen if he was in that study. Didn't he get mad? 
He was not happy. <laughs> but isn't that better than everyone standing around saying, oh, I'm offended, I'm offended. It's better to have someone go up to him and challenge him. Yeah, absolutely. I just debate him. He's out there because he wants attention. Why don't you give him some attention he doesn't want? Yeah. He's happy when people are standing there like, oh, why are you here? I don't want you here. Why are you here? Well, if nothing else, it's an ego booster for the jackass. Yeah. But but it's not an ego booster when you talk about how his penis would get erect if he watched homosexual porn. Right. <laughs> it probably struck a chord with him that he was not comfortable having struck. Yes. Or having had struck. <laughs> I mean, I'm just guessing. I don't know what his situation is, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Science. Well, speaking, and this is another just mighty segue, speaking of offense. Uh-oh. Uh, this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, having, again, I, I'm, I don't want to make it a, a mantra on the show that I was in the Marine Corps, but this is in the news, and so we're definitely going to talk about it. Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, Michael Barrett, was in the news recently because he's advocating for less pay for the Marines because it will raise discipline. He's saying that lower pay and slimmed-down benefits will make Marines more disciplined and less wasteful. In comments before a Senate Armed Services Committee panel on Wednesday, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps Michael Barrett dismissed lawmaker concerns that proposed compensation trims in the Pentagon's fiscal 2015 budget proposal would hurt troops' morale and desire to serve. Yeah, so I kind of want to explain, first of all, for the many, many, for most of the vast majority of you who don't know kind of about military parlance and who this guy is, he is the highest ranking enlisted official in the Marine Corps. There, you've got your officer corps, you know, your lieutenants through four-star general, and then you've got your private through sergeant major, and you've got many sergeants major, and then you've got the head guy who is the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. He's the top sergeant major. It's certainly not a ceremonial post. It's not. It's a. It's an actual billet it's a job it's a it's he has his own separate mos his own number for his job and everything he is i would say chiefly a a politician he's not uh not a a war he's not a guy who's leading troops he's addressing congress as he was in this case so he appeared i guess it was wednesday before the senate armed services committee yes and his, his general point of view, his exact quote is actually, Marines don't run around asking about compensation or retirement modernization. That's not on their mind. As I talk to thousands of audiences, they want to know into whose neck do we put a boot next. Yeah, and I've, we've actually got audio of it. I, I dug and dug and dug. And in the, in the annals of C-SPAN, I actually had to go to the committee's website to pull it, but... So apparently Marines just want to work for free. They're not worried about compensation. Right, right. right. Well, it's, it's also, I tell you what, I'm gonna, we're going to put all this in context, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to do what the, the, the print media, they don't have the luxury of just posting all the audio. But I'm going to put it in perspective of, of Senator uh, Gillibrand from New York, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. She asked a question, and then we're going to play a couple of his responses. Um, what will the impact of the changes be on our service members, especially our lower enlisted troops and families? What are you currently hearing from the enlisted ranks? What are their biggest concerns about these cuts? 
and will the enactment of these proposals harm recruiting and retention? So there's a couple different things that they're talking about there, and she's specifically asking about the cuts that they are proposing because they're proposing a 1.8% increase in pay and many others, uh, and I think even Hagel, who's a worthless turd, the Secretary of Defense, um, a turncoat, uh, a, t- a terrible he was a terrible politician he's a, a senator he was a senator from nebraska uh, prior to that so there, are, there there's you know we're, we're trying to shift focus now from the multi-theater wars that we've been involved in and they're trying to cut the budgets i, I get that that's fine but when you've got a 1.8 percent pay increase proposed and you're proposing less than that when you are the representative of the enlisted troops in the Marine Corps, and you say some of the things that you're saying, you need to be a little bit more thoughtful because morale is a big thing in the military, and you're definitely damaging it. So she's asking specifically about junior enlisted, the younger junior enlisted troops and how this will affect their morale and also how it will um, affect recruitment which are both very major things because the large majority of the work that's done in the service, in the Army, in the Marine Corps, in the Navy, is done by junior, junior enlisted folks. It's not done by colonels. The bulk of the workload is not done by sergeants major. So his answer to her question was this. Um, first of all, Marines don't run around and ask in a, and. and What's on their mind is compensation benefits or retirement modernization. That's not on their minds. As I walk around and talk to the, the, the thousands of audiences, they want to know into whose neck do we put a boot next. They want to know about what new equipment are we getting. Are, are we continuing to modernize? Are we not going to, you know, just because the budget sucks, does that mean we're not going to get any more gear? Are we going to stay ahead of our competitors? And the other thing they always ask about is they want to know about training. We're, we're, we're a force that has a bias for action, and we're a happy lot when we're deployed. Idle hands are not good in the Marine Corps. Keep us, keep us out there for deployed just like our moniker tells us that's where we need to be. So that's what's on, that's what's on their mind, actually. And I'll tell you, promotion and retention and money does eventually come up, but it's not in the top three. It's normally four, five, six, or seven. So here's a message for you. Sergeant Major Michael Barrett. Uh-oh. I was a junior enlisted Marine. I got out. Um, I was an NCO, a non-commissioned officer, but I wasn't a staff sergeant. I wasn't a, a gunny, gunnery sergeant. I wasn't a sergeant major. You need to understand that when you stand before an audience of Marines and they're concerned when they stand up and ask you questions, they're standing up asking you questions as young warriors as the blood-sucking war machines that they are. They're not asking you questions and wanting to be embarrassed in front of their, their peers asking questions about what kind of money they make. That's pussy shit to Marines. It's a legitimate concern that they absolutely have for themselves and their young families, but it's not the kind of question that gets asked to senior enlisted personnel. And a private or a PFC, or a Lance Corporal, or a Corporal for that matter, doesn't, his scope of concern doesn't involve statements you'll make before the Senate Armed Services Committee. It's not on their radar what Congress thinks that they could have some kind of impact 
on what Congress is going to pay them and allow them to be paid, it's, it's not on their radar because they are junior enlisted. What's on their radar when they stand before the epic 17th, there's only been in, in the 230-some years that the Marine Corps has been uh, um, an entity, a war-fighting force, and a great force at that, but in, in, the, in the couple hundred years, there's only been 17 sergeants major. You're the 17th. So you're an epic figure. You're a legend, the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. When I was in, it was Sergeant Major Overstreet, which he was, he was, you were nervous to stand before the Sergeant Major and ask a question. That's that's an amazing thing. So they're not going to be asking you about, are we going to be, what kind of a percentage are we going to get paid next year? Because that's not what it's about. And the great thing about it is that there was a large amount of backlash, so much backlash that this Marine, this gritty tough marine ended up having to write an open letter to marines to clear his position because it was so controversial but before we get to that we've got another clip from the wonderful sergeant major michael barrett if we do not pay a little bit more attention to the health care uh, that we so generously have received wonderful packages and in my 33 years i have never seen this level of quality of life ever. We have never had it so good. And, and I say that point because if we don't get a hold of slowing the growth, we will become an entitlements-based, a healthcare provider-based core, and not a war-fighting organization. Says the man who makes over $80,000 a year. That was going to be my next question because he is also spending a lot of time talking about how he truly believes that a reduce that a reduced pay would result in raising the discipline because you'll have better spending habits and won't be so wasteful. Yeah. It's nice that someone who's making a ton of money is trying to say that about people getting a pay cut. What are you talking about? Yeah. his. Now we're just talking about his base pay. We're not talking about his, his uh, BAH, which is basic allowance for housing. We're not talking about his other little perks that he gets. We're talking about his base pay, what his paycheck is when it comes in the mail or it gets into his direct deposit. I just wonder how he would feel if there was someone advocating for a cut in his pay and talking about right. how he would be more disciplined if he made less money. Right. Well, if someone who is supposed to represent you, it's like if you're in a union and the main union leader starts advocating for everyone to have lower pay. Yeah. It's complete bullshit. But the other thing that he says is, in my 33 years... I have never had it so good. Well, no shit, dick. Because when you were 30 years ago when you were in, you were but a low Marine that wasn't making any money. 30 years later, you're making over 80 grand a year. Of course you've never had it so good because you've never been at this position until you've been in for a long time. It's reprehensible. It's he needs to step back and quit trying to kiss Congress's ass about yeah. oh it oh our our wonderful pay package our 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 wonderful health care package it's just so great mm-hmm. oh senator oh senator you're embarrassing yourself. Well, in this letter that he wrote, kind of takes like a back step almost like he's trying to back away from what he said. It, it does in a very sly way. Well, first first I would admonish uh, the sergeant major that he either needs to take a 
creative writing course or <laughs> maybe get um, one of those lowly privates who could write to, to write for him. He definitely needs some assistance. Yeah, take a, take a course or something there, buddy. So he wrote this open letter to Marines. So it was only, it was only two days later after having testified because of all the outrage that, that that happened and the uproar. He offended some people. Yeah, he offended. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is his letter. Unabridged with my commentary mingled in. Marines, there is no more noble or honorable profession than, than to serve your nation, to serve the flag, to serve an idea. I believe in what America stands for. We represent goodness. I believe in service. And I believe in duty. That was a separate sentence. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Just suffice it to say, it's not well written. I'm reading it as though it's awesome, but it's not. Uh, and I believe in duty. Marines in uniform today, every single one of you had a choice, and all of you chose to serve. I'm humbled. Thank you. Goddamn, it's written terribly. <laughs> it's so, so bad. Well, first of all, in throughout this letter, there's going to be a lot of these emotion eliciting words that make you feel proud that make you really love America and, and the military and to really, they're wonderful and they are wonderful. They sacrifice so much for so little so we can have so much. He goes on on Wednesday. I testified in front of the Senate armed services committee subcommittee on personnel and active guard reserve and civilian personnel programs in review of the defense authorization request for fiscal year 2015 and the future year's defense program. He's just explaining. Recent reporting of my testimony may have left you with a mistaken impression that I don't care about your quality of life and that I support lower pay for service members. This is not true. Nah. Yeah, I, I think nah is a an apt response to that because we just heard what he said. If he's talking about you not paying you paying them less because they'll be more disciplined and they won't have as much money to spend and they'll have to make more wise choices on what they spend their money that that's exactly what he's saying what you need to know about this hearing is that we discussed quality of life and personnel issues some of our civilian leaders have proposed a one percent pay raise vice larger ones we've enjoyed in the past a reduction of annual bah as I mentioned earlier, BAH is basic allowance, uh, basic allowance for housing, uh, annual BAH rates over time, not to exceed 5% out of pocket and a subsidy reduction for our commissaries. So the other part of the, the pay thing that they're, they're talking about is that they want to reduce how much allowance they give to families who live off base so they can, they can pay for, for rent or whatever they, for housing. And they're going to, they're, it's proposed that they lower it by, so the, the service members have to come up with no more than 5% out of pocket, which in, in and of itself isn't, it's not that large a thing. But what my problem is, is that he is the representative of these junior Marines to Congress. And he's not taken up for them. He's taking up for the general the general budgetary concerns, and I don't believe that's his role, or it should not be if that's what his role is. Nobody wants less, but if we don't slow the growth of our hard-earned generous compensation slash 
benefit in, uh, entitlements than we have enjoyed that we have enjoyed over the past decade. We won't have sufficient dollars for what we need investment in our warfighting capabilities and our wonderful marine and family care programs. We're not done fighting or serving as America's expeditionary force in readiness, and we need to be more prepared for what's around the corner. This is all true, but anybody who's studied entitlement and pay package programs would know that once you get that raise, that's allotted for that. You fight for the other stuff separately. And the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of waste that goes on in the military. Recently, all of the services went around and designed their own camouflage utilities. And someone did a study, and I, we'll have to post it. Someone did a study, and they say that it probably wasted $5 billion when one uniform could have been, especially since it's the utilities. It's not your dress uniforms. It's not... It's while you're out in the field in your war fighting capability. It's th that uniform, not the distinct uniform that make, makes each service different. So there's a lot of places to cut the fat in the military. A lot. And don't let the, the far right wing weirdos who never want to cut anything in the military tell you because it's fact. There's a lot of places that cuts could be made, but it should not be. It should not be in, in benefits, and it shouldn't be in care packages or in uh, pay packages. The responsibilities put on your shoulders are great, from standards and discipline to giving orders to kill, to risk being killed yourself. I know you will continue to be selfless. I know you will continue to sacrifice for one another. I know you will continue to succeed these times, to succeed during these times and the tough times that lay ahead. Well, of course you know that they're going to continue to be selfless because you know what kind of pay you're proposing they get. They're going to, they have no choice but to be selfless because they're going to be making less money than they, than they, they deserve. And he continues, keep your eye on the ball. We need to focus our efforts on things that are really, and that's all capitalized, that are really important to us. Not, not your paycheck. That, that's not really important to you. Not how much money you're, you're, you're bringing home for your family and your young family and your kids. Yeah, not, not how you're going to continue to pay your bills and your mortgage and your car payment and it's your not, daycare. It's not really important how much money you're able to save for, for college once you get out of the military, if that's what you choose to do. That's not really important. Even though it is a job where they're going in, they really want to do this, they want to be in the military, they want to do these things, they still need to be paid. There's yeah. people that have jobs that they love doing their job. They still get paid to live so that they can live i would say that there are two groups in this country that are underpaid and teachers would be one but they have a union fighting for them and the military and the military is absolutely underpaid teachers aren't risking their lives on a daily basis and deploying away from their families for months and months at a time the military is they're absolutely very much underpaid and when their chief representative to congress is advocating bullshit there's a problem so let me, let me finish. We need to focus our efforts on things that are really important to us. Have an able and willing attitude, a purpose, and then for some reason, parenthetically, he just puts the word goals. Be the go-to Marine. 
give all your efforts and make quality a part of everything you do. Maybe your, the quality of your testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee should have been a little bit more. Marines are thinkers, selfless and fearless. Our martial spirit, our storied legacy, our history. <laughs> and then there's this inexplicable comma. Our history is forged in the eagle, globe, and anchor. It's forged in you. Always faithful, Michael P. Barrett, 17th Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. Unfortunately, it's forged in him as well. Ugh. So the guy who's getting his, he's making his over $80,000 a year. Uh, some estimates, and I don't know, everything I've read on the web says he makes about 7200 bucks a month. I don't think that's right. I think it's less than that. I would estimate it at between um, sixty-eight and 7000 bucks a month. Plus all the other benefit type stuff that he gets. So, you know, I understand that he's he is a policymaker or he he's not a policymaker, but he's definitely a policy influencer. But when he's sitting at the table before that Senate subcommittee and all the other enlisted chiefs he is sitting with when when they're advocating for more for the troops and then he's the only knucklehead that comes out for less, there's a problem. And what, what is the annual salary for the Marines, for just an average? You know, it, it really, it, it, it varies a lot. And when I was in, when I was in the Marine Corps, I, when I was a, just a PFC, I was taking home every two weeks, and they were taking out my GI Bill stuff. I mean, I was taking home $300, $200 every two weeks. Mm-hmm. That was my take home, mm -hmm. but it, it really, it ranges. And I'm not sure. I've been out a long time. So, but you know, my main issue is not with the money he makes. Cause I also believe he earns the money he makes. And if they could pay him more, I think they should pay him more. I'm not begrudging him the money he makes. I'm begrudging him now that he's got his, he's shitting on those below him. And, and then trying to use words, charged words about being selfless and these the responsibilities on your shoulder. But he needs to be true to his duty to these young men and women. And he's, I don't believe he's being that. I believe he's being a shill for Congress, and he is, uh, he's kissing their ass, trying to be Mr. Tough Guy. Well, we're gonna, they're always asking me, who's, who's, whose neck are we going to put our boot on next? Great. Listen. Those senators in that subcommittee are largely civilians and have never served in the military. When they look out at the sea of uniforms in their, in their committee room, in their hearing room, they see the Marine and they see the Air Force. They see the Army people and they see the Navy. They look at you as the badass. Everyone already knows the Marine Corps is A, number one, chiefly the most badass service. It's generally known that. If it wasn't generally known that, army guys wouldn't whine and complain about how, well, Green Berets, they're tough too. Yeah, that's great. We get it, for sure. And they are. You don't have to impress the female senator from New York with what a tough guy you are. What you should do to impress the female senator from New York is do your goddamn job and try to advocate for those junior Marines. 
So I don't know if this sounds right, but I just found this. Um, starting pay for a private is fourteen sixty eight a month. Mm-hmm. For a private first class, sixteen forty five a month. And that's this is why I couldn't answer your question because it's starting pay, but your pay goes up if you're a private first class with ten years of service, which is an odd thing because usually you've been promoted by then. But if your your pay goes up by how many years of service you have. So if he was a sergeant sergeant major with 10 years of service, it would be much lower than a sergeant major with 33 years of service. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, this yeah, I see what you're saying cuz this says sergeant major pay starting at 60 or sorry, starting pay 46.35 a month, maximum is 71.96 a month after 38 years. Yeah. So they list a maximum right. pay. Right. So some of the other changes that they, they've proposed are a pay freeze for uh, flag and general officers, which would be flag officer, I believe, starts at colonel, um, and then general officers. That, that's fine. They're also making you know over 100 grand a year. They're, they're taken care of. They're okay. Their families are okay. It's the junior Marines who have young, growing families and who are trying to squ- squirrel away money those are the ones that need to be taken care of. So I doubt you're listening, Sergeant Major Michael P. Barrett, but if someone has any reach at all, have him tune in and have him get his, his, uh, his discipline today because somebody needs to reach out. Because if he's not standing up for those junior Marines, who's going to? He's the only one that has Congress's ear. All right. Well... Off to more offensive things. Right. So we have episode or segment number four, 1.4, or however we're numbering these things. There's too many. We're keeping track of too much stuff. We're numbering too much stuff. So it's another Monday installment of our segment, Religious Roundup with Brett McAfee. And this is another one. Apparently, we have a congressional theme on the show because we are talking about Louis Gohmert, who is a Texas congressman. Supreme Jackass. Here we go. Howdy, y'all. Thanks for joining us at the Religious Roundup. All right, let's get those doggies rolling, huh? <laughs> yeah, welcome to a third and second, fourth installment. I'm going to go with four, if my welcome elementary to... math education serves me. <laughs> welcome to the Religious Roundup 1.4. I guess one would be the, the, the season, season one, episode four, because once I get to... Once I get to 10, we're going to have to do 2.1, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you're obviously – you have some kind of a <clears throat> contract with the network where, you know, you're going to split this up <laughs> into seasons, I'm assuming. Yeah. You might get canceled, Brett. So let's, uh, <laughs> I'm trying – Let's just keep keep that in mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying really hard to step up and bring something to the table here. <laughs> yeah. After having just talked to you, it sounds like your feet are up on your desk, so – you're not really standing up at all. No, it's true. I uh, for this 
Well, I figure I just might as well be as comfortable as possible during this piece of, piece of shit segment. Yeah, it's it's a terrible thing. Yeah, I got and nothing better to, to do. To, to let everybody know what this terrible segment is going to include today, I want to introduce uh, a a Republican congressman from Texas. That should say it all, but a Republican congressman from Texas named Louis Gohmert. And for those of you who aren't as adroit at politics and have a, a deep understanding of different members of Congress, he is a gentleman who has been on many episodes or many installments of uh, Anderson Cooper 360 and has gotten into fights with him. And he's one of those guys that likes to storm off set and throw his mic down and yell and scream. And he's he's just generally just kind of an ignorant fucker. So um, my favorite. He recently. He he recently yeah is there any other kind of fucker than the ignorant kind? No. He he recently is doing some project where they are talking about church and state and history of the capital and but before we get to that for those of you who don't really have an understanding of who he is and what his um what his general stances in life and how he tackles issues of any intellectual nature. Well, first of all, he's a former judge. He sat in judgment of people who were convicted or accused of felonies, and he brings this kind of logic to that job. And someday, some court somewhere will say, you know what? Sexual orientation means exactly what those words mean. You're oriented. I hope it doesn't offend, but this is this is part of the law. It's laws in most states, or has been certainly in many states. If uh, you're oriented toward animals, bestiality, uh, then you know that that's not something that could be used to, held against you, or any bias be held against you for that. Which means you'd have to strike any laws against bestiality. If you're oriented toward corpses, toward children. You know, there are all kinds of perversions, what most of us would call perversions. Some would say it it sounds like fun, but most of us would say we're perversions. Uh, And there have been laws against them. So that gives you a little insight into the mind of the intellectually challenged Louis Gohmert. Well, one thing I noticed he left out was animal corpses, which, Mm. so I'm okay. Well, that would be absolutely uncomfortable. Of course, there's a linkage between homosexuality and having sex with the body of a dead animal, Brett. Well, yeah. Are you are you asserting that there's no logical connection between those two things? No, I, I think uh, you might get canceled before you knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm saying that I think it's completely obvious that two consenting adults who love each other, who want to come together and spend their their rightful lives together, is exactly the same as a mm-hmm. guy. Who wants to fuck the dead corpse of an animal? What's the difference? No, there's no difference. It's it's clear logic. Yes. I think I think he's been uh, standing too long in the hot West Texas sun because his fucking and he also is a bald dude, so you know it's it's very very it's baking that what is already a shriveled, underused cranium, his brain inside there is just withering and crying out for. It's it's like a guy in the desert. It's just it's all it sees is uh, the oasis. It's actually just a mirage. And the first step to becoming an ignorant fucker is a radiated brain. 
<laughs> it's somewhere. It's written down somewhere. But shocking that he was a judge in Texas. An unbelievable. I mean, Brittany and I were were reading the other day about the different the numbers of of uh, executions, and Texas is two, maybe three times higher than the next state. Like over five hundred people since like two thousand or something. Good God. Yeah, they don't they don't fuck around. Yeah, that that death penalty, particularly Texas, it 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 puts us into the it puts us into the um, upper echelons of advanced societies like uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, what what are some of those other uh, countries? Iran, Iran, Afghanistan, yeah, you know, Pakistan. You're more forward thinking countries that still have the death penalty, and the United States. Here we are. Right. Right. Well, Good company. To our credit. The last guillotine execution in France was in the late 70s. <laughs> so, and I'm not talking the fucking 1870s. It was like 1977 or 1978 that they chopped the head off of the last guy in France. And that's the cowardly ass French. <laughs> I never did understand why they got rid of that method. I have, of all the methods of if you're going to try to be humane to somebody, just sever the head that seems to be yeah, the I, most humane to me I don't know. i'm pretty sure our method's pretty humane where they just put you to sleep it's <laughs> and if you ever had surgery if anybody who knows who's ever been anesthetized it's it's you have this fear going in that okay start counting down from 10 and you're like oh, you're fighting it because you you want to make sure you're out and i i don't know that i've ever even gotten to three or or seven as it uh, were three Ten. Nine. No, I meant going backwards. Yeah, I know, but uh, I mean, for me, it's always like ten. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I could deal with a little execution if that's what it's like. Just a wee 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 Just go so, to sleep. So in this this project, uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is because it's so filled with distortion and what I would consider outright lies, um, but. He is in the first clip I'm going to play for you. He's explaining where he is in the Capitol and its multi-use function that it used to have back in the olden days. We're here in Statuary Hall, as it's called now, but uh, until uh, nearly 1860, maybe 1858 or so, when the new uh, Representatives Hall opened, this was where the House of Representatives met. On Sundays... This became the largest non-denominational Christian church in Washington, D.C. area. First of all, uh, I love the, the soft, emotional music in the background and his, his elder statesman tone. You know, we, back in the old days, we used to also have, this was the largest non-denominational church in all of Washington. He, he sounds like a very reasonable human being. Oh, he does. You would have to just tune into C-SPAN when he's on the floor of the House of Representatives spewing his venom about, you know, how bestiality. I mean, he might as well grow a beard, move to Louisiana, and be another cast member on that horrible duck show. Yeah, well, I would I would also like to see him hooked up to a truth wiener and shows show a little bit of bestiality going on, see what's going actually going on in this guy's head. I know he seems he seems particularly. Um, <laughs> it would focused. register movement. You could hook one up to him and have him just drive around, 
and it would register movement every time he saw a dead dog on the side of the road. <laughs> you you need a um you need a soundbite, man, with like a horse, a horse whinny. <laughs> <laughs> So, so he goes on, and he, of course, he wants to demonstrate that separation of church and state, as we understand it today, is not at all how, how it was intended. In fact, he chooses, the, the man he chooses to defend his position is none other than Thomas Jefferson. The, the only other character he could have picked that would have been more out of sync with what he believes church and state is, or the separation of church and state is, would be Thomas Paine, who wrote The Age of Reason and who was an atheist. So Thomas Jefferson was absolutely not in, in step with uh, Louis Gohmert's understanding of church and state. But I'm not, I'm not going to speak for him because he's such an eloquent speaker. I'll let him do it himself. Thomas Jefferson... We're talking about the guy who coined the phrase separation of church and state, who said there should be a wall of separation between church and state. But it was to be a one-way wall where the state would not dictate to the church, but the church would certainly play a role in the state. And so President Thomas Jefferson had a little different idea of what separation of church and state meant when he used it in his letter to the Danbury Baptist because President Thomas Jefferson came to church, a Christian worship service right here in Statuary Hall, as we call it now. On some occasions, Thomas Jefferson would bring the Marine Band to play hymns to accompany the uh, worshipers as they sang hymns of praise and worship to God. Uh, so that's a little different idea than a lot of people have about separation of church and state now, in, including some of our esteemed Supreme Court, who are not quite as familiar with our history as they probably should be. Yeah, it's the, it's the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court justices of the United States who need to brush up on history, Louis. <laughs> God damn. That's constitutional his, history. What, what a dipshit. So Mr. Dipshit goes on. I mean, he, he clearly is very convoluted in, in his entire structure of that because he's talking about separation of church and state and then talks about bringing the Marine band in to the church service. He also intimates oddly that just because Thomas he never clearly I mean if you if you notice he never says Thomas Jefferson was a Christian he says Thomas Jefferson attended a Christian service there well I even after having um after having denied Christ I have attended church services I've been in a church it doesn't mean I'm a Christian it I just still means listen there. to worship music for Christ's sake yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just because that just, shit is sometimes thoroughly good. Uh, the best. No, it's, it really is. If if Christians do anything right, well, one, it's not rock and roll. It's worship music and choir music. But I absolutely listen to Christian music. Still, I follow Take Six on Facebook and just reposted one of their videos that they posted. It's awesome. But that doesn't make me a Christian. And we're getting off track. So. What I want to do is I want to demonstrate to our listeners, and thank you for being there, sitting in, hopefully on, at your desk with your feet up like Brett. 
uh, I want to demonstrate a couple of things that uh, Thomas Jefferson said. And in 1782, Jefferson, in his notes on Virginia, wrote, Millions of innocent men, women, and children since the introduction of Christianity have been burnt, tortured, fined, and imprisoned. Yet we have not advanced one inch towards uniformity. <laughs> so uh, that's super. He, 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 well, first of all, uh, Thomas Jefferson was an unmitigating fucking genius. I, I was just in prep talking to Brett about it and really compared him. I wouldn't compare him to Hitchens. I would compare Hitchens to him intellectually. This guy was a massive, massive brain, an unbelievable intellect, and we could all learn a lot. And members of Congress should really do a little bit more reading about who he was and what he believed. A flawed man, but a genius nonetheless. Just every time I read one of his quotes, it makes me never want to put pen to paper again. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, but why even try? What, what he says there is is profound, uh, talking about the, the the different. I mean, how many denominations of Christianity are there? Yeah, well, what he says there, um, he's talking about that there's no uniformity whatsoever, and that's very that's a very salient point because if Christ were to come back, if all of this bullshit was to be real, wouldn't there be a church of Christ? Wouldn't there be one church where all these people come together and believe the same thing? But that is not the case. Here we are over 2,000 years later, and we have over 34,000 different variations of Christianity according to the World Christian Encyclopedia. 30,000 non-denominational churches in the United States. Important to note, non-denominational because they broke off from their mothership. So you've got denominations going um, away from the Baptists that, that take parts of it and create their own churches and they, they go away from the Pentecostals and, or any other uh, variety of Protestantism. And even in, boy, I freaking fucked up that word. Um, even in Catholicism, <laughs> uh, branches out into a multitude of different beliefs. So there's no uniformity. There's no umbrella. Uh, and it makes zero logical sense according to their own philosophies of what it all means. And yeah, absolutely. awesome that Jefferson kind of had a handle on that way the fuck back then. <laughs> well, he certainly – I can tell you what Jefferson certainly did have a handle on, and that's what a wall was. <laughs> Louis Gohmert was just talking about – well, you know, he's talking about the wall of separation between church and state, but it was a, it was a one-way wall. <laughs> he clearly wasn't in construction prior to being in law and, and, uh, and, a, and a legislator. Because there is no such thing as a one-way wall. I don't think he knows how walls work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, separation of church and state, it's a good thing. And it's not just a good thing for those of us who don't have religion or don't believe that there's gods. It's a good thing for for every one of those 34,000 flavors of Christianity. It's a good thing for each one of them because separation of church and state – protects one from another if if you've got your snake handlers and then you've got your mild-mannered lutherans they don't want to have to deal with the other's bullshit you don't want to introduce snake handling in in the in the morning prayer at your local public school if you're a lutheran (laughs) 
So yeah. So or or if you're just your run of the mill wacky fundamentalist uh, Christian, you don't want those snake handlers in in the, in the school. But that hey, that's the way we worship. We need to do that. So Christians would be smart. Christians Christians would be wise to take note of that. It, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Well, they would be wise to to let to let the established separation of church and state continue to protect them. So I think that a good way to say it would be that the separation of church and state helps to separate your religions and protect your religions, while at the same time, it protects others like me from your religions. So it's a great establishment because it's going to protect you. You're going to be able to be free to worship how you see fit, but it also is going to protect me from having laws created based on your religious fucking bullshit. Right. Which is pretty much what you were saying about the snake handlers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the establishment clause is absolutely that there shouldn't be an establishment of religion. Like in England, there's the Church of England. We don't need that. That only causes problems. So, But it's also separating the church from the state and vice versa. The state doesn't need to be getting involved, like Louis Gormer is saying, in the church. But it's absolutely not a two-way wall. It's a, or a one-way wall. It's a two-way wall, <laughs> like like most walls that you've seen. I really want to see a picture of what this guy understands a wall to be. Yeah, I, I'm gonna get his address. I'll put it on the Facebook page, and we'll uh, we'll admonish our our listeners to find out. Let's find out what he thinks a wall is. Um, Thomas Jefferson is really was the wrong choice for Gomert to to put out there as the 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 spokesman for his one-walled system. Um, Thomas Jefferson also said, the Christian God can easily be pictured as virtually the same God as the many ancient gods of past civilizations. The Christian God is a three-headed monster, cruel, vengeful, and capricious. If one wishes to know more of this raging, three-headed beast-like God, the only, he, uh, one only needs to look at the caliber of people who say they serve him. <laughs> they are always of two classes, fools and hypocrites. Mm, it's so good. Very tasty. It's, <laughs> I, I can skip lunch now. <laughs> that was very tasty indeed. Uh, I, lo- I love how he uses the word capricious. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's very fitting, and it's a perfect description of the Christian God. It really is. You know, uh, Christians are so uh, – they so faithfully need to believe that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, uh, as the scripture says, when it's, it's abhorrently evident that he is not the same whatsoever. As the Bible flows through history, God seems to change. Oddly, Jesse, he seems to change as cultures seem to change. It's uh, very peculiar. It is very well, peculiar. Capricious. What is Webster? Yeah, what is exactly the, the definition? Yeah, I apologize. So capricious. Uh, capricious, uh, the cliff note version, uh, one who is prone to sudden and erratic changes. <laughs> Jefferson is saying that God, I mean, uh, out of all the amazing things he said in that quote, he's saying that the God of the Bible is capricious. He's prone to sudden and erratic changes, which is absolutely in line with the Bible. Yes. <laughs> your your friendly love God that, as, that uh, you worship today is uh, a far cry from the guy who was around 3,500 years ago. <laughs> yes, the warmongering God. Strangely, the, the tribes who were warmongering at that time 
defines him as warmongering and and a warrior god. And then mm-hmm. strangely, when insight and philosophy came to light, uh, we get a philosophical god. He was kind of a bastard during the Dark Ages too. Yeah, what a son of a bitch he, that guy was. He, he he shifted back to being kind of a cock. <laughs> so uh, Thomas Jefferson goes on. This is not out of one specific writing, but I'm just going to say it that way. He goes on to say, uh, I have examined all the known superstitions of the world. I do not find in our particular superstition of Christianity one redeeming feature. They are all alike founded on fables and mythology. So this sounds like a guy who really wanted to make the foundation of our country Christianity. He, <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to build something that you really love and dedicate your life to, you want to de- you want to build it upon the foundation of something you you revile and think is 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 terrible. Yeah, he apparently had zero respect for for Christianity, complete zero respect. You can tell. Eh. Well, it's if you wanted to read a different version of the Bible, Jefferson wrote a different New Testament, a completely. He took out a took out a bunch of shit he thought was worthless and left in all the good parts. Pretty good. Um, he also says, question with boldness even the existence of a god, because if there is one, he must approve of the homage of reason more than that of blindfolded fear. Wow. Uh, it, speaking of tasty, just deli- like in music when you people talk about oh what a what a delicious little lick uh, like on a guitar yeah that right there I, I want to tattoo that on my fucking forehead that is awesome goddamn you might want to you might want to get another tattoo <laughs> <laughs> um, it's he, he was he understood then uh, and there were there were thinkers and and philosophers uh, way before him as well it wasn't a new idea but he understood clearly that reason and logical thinking has for almost almost right after the death of Christ if that even happened um had begun to outpace uh religious thinking and faith-based thinking absolutely he, just, he so well, clearly he, understood those ideas even in that previous quote we haven't made 1 inch we, there is no progress in religion. None. It's it's social progress that drives progress in the church. It's like the Mormons. Uh, we don't allow blacks into the priesthood. Oh wait, we're getting pushed back. Oh yeah, okay. God just said we can have them in. We we have polygamy, and that's what we do, and that's the only way to the celestial uh, level of heaven. Oh wait, we're not going to be allowed to be a state into the United admitted into the United States of America if we don't do away with it. Oh, bat phone just rang. It was Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus no more, phone. <laughs> no more plural marriage, everybody. Talk about capricious. So, social change is what drives change in the church, and that's why it's so important for us as atheists, as secularists, as humanists to keep keep it going. People always ask me, and I'm sure you've been asked the same question, Brett. Well, if you don't believe, why don't you just be quiet? Why, why don't you just let people do their thing? If it weren't for my loud, flapping lips constantly jabbering about the bullshit that exists, whether it be gay marriage or stem cell research or whatever social change that we need, the, the, the progress, and I'm not taking sole credit for it, but people like me, people like Brett, it, the, the change within the religious organizations would be far, far slower. Yeah, and I, it's something that that 
uh, we've said before on this segment and uh, something that we've been shouting about for years, uh, that there is no being left alone. Your, you know, your religion is, is in our government. Your religion is in our face. Your religion is stymieing uh, forward progression of science. You know, your religion is, is keeping our children from being able to learn the truth of scientific method and explanation. Uh, religion is a disease to our country. And fucking A, man. Absolutely. We do need to stand up and shout. And, and, we, and of course, you know, we may be only making a, a tiny little ripple in a giant ocean with our loud, outspoken voice. But to, uh, to paraphrase your, your most beloved quote, uh, the only thing for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So I, re- exactly right. I refuse to stand still and do nothing. It's, it's funny that you said that it, religion is a disease because psychology and medicine today would consider addiction a disease. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in this quote, he nails it. He, he fucking nails this one. He says, I never submitted the whole system of my opinions to the creed of any party of men what's, whatever. In religion, in philosophy, in politics, or in anything else where I was capable of thinking for myself. Such an addiction is the last degradation of a free and moral agent. He wrote that in a letter to Francis Hopkins in 1789. Wonderful guy. So he right there is saying that religion is an addiction. It is a disease. Yes, it is. I, it's hard. And it really, if you think about it metaphorically, it is like an addiction. It's, it's hard to leave. It's hard to let go. It's hard to quit. It, and then when you, once you do leave, you crave it for a long time after you've left. No doubt, man. They should have they should have fucking AA meetings for us. AAA meetings. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is support addiction. groups. It's too easy to to uh, slough the onus off onto uh, your faith in some other higher being who's actually in control of everything. To you know, it's, it, there's a comfort in that. To going through your life knowing and thinking that uh, if you make bad decisions, uh, not not bad decisions, but decisions that affect your life negatively, uh, that you're going to be taken care of because it's all part of God's plan. There's a comfort in that. And it's also lazy. That's that's one of the reasons I think that there are immensely intelligent people who still ascribe to this faith because it's goddamn addicting and it's very comforting if you just kind of give into it. Uh but again, and like we said before, uh, once you're out of it and you're out of it for a long enough time and you've gotten that shit out of your, out of your system and you're done, you, don't, you no longer have the DTs, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's a better it's, life. It, it's like being a smoker. You love it while you're there. It's so good. I've never been a smoker, but I'm, you could probably speak to this more accurately having smoked a cigarette or two. I'll be right back. You, <laughs> you, you love it while you're doing it. It, it after a meal or after sex or whatever. It just, it's so delicious. But then once you've not been a smoker for a long time, it, you talk to anybody who smoked, they're like, Oh my God, I feel so much better. Yeah. It's so great. Not smoking. You don't have the stinkiness and the, the, you look at the world from a whole different lens. That's just so much more beautiful. I love it. It's metaphor. like those. It's like those blue blocker sunglasses that you see on those commercials, and you're like, well, how good could they be? And then they put the lens over the TV screen. You're like, holy shit! I got to get me some of those fucking blue blockers. 
And if you are a Christian and you're listening, uh, that is exactly what it's like. So uh, I also like the metaphor, the, the smoking um, analogy, because you never realize how bad you fucking stink to everybody else. <laughs> so yeah. until you're out of it and then you get a good whiff of that and you're like, holy shit, I stunk that bad? Why, yes, you did. It's terrible. Yes, you did. Door to door, hands raised in the air, praising your little heart out. You stunk. <laughs> but get, get, getting back, getting back to the the one wall uh, interpretation of church and state. Um, what are their arrows he, pointing one direction? I I'm, yeah, that's right. It must be. It's like a it's like a two way mirror. Except he's not talking about light. He's talking about actual ugh, policy. So. Jefferson, just to re- reassert that he was not a, cl- a fan of intermingling of faith and state, you know, he said, the whole history of the Gospels is so defective and doubtful that it seems vain to attempt minute inquiry into it. And such tricks have been played with their text and with the text of other books relating to them that we have a right from that cause to entertain much doubt what parts of them are genuine. In the New Testament, there is internal evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man, and that other parts are a fabric of very inferior minds. It is as easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. He wrote that to his best friend, a letter to his best friend, John Adams, in January of 1814. Yeah. That's Awesome, and John Adams is very commonly referred to as a as a, a a pious Christian man, and he was a deist. He was not a theist. That's good, man. I mean, that really that right that that we are shouldn't be intermingling church and state, faith and state, religion and state, worship and state. And it's not it's not just separating. They don't need to be. We don't need to be intermingling them one way or the other. The the one wall theory isn't going to work, Louis <laughs> Gomer. Oh yeah. While at the same time completely discrediting the idea that the Bible is the holy, inspired, and infallible Word of God. Yeah. First John says, "In the beginning was the it was uh, in in the beginning was the Word, and in the beginning was the God. Was God. The Word yeah. was God. Yeah. It's in the beginning." was the word and the word was god and the word was with god it's yeah. there's no way to separate the two and he he completely just destroys that idea uh with a couple of very clever sentences absolutely you know it it's a lot of people they they ascribe that the constitution was only for then and today's different and you know, a lot of that might be true, but that's why we have a mechanism to change change our government, our constitution. But he says he says in it in every country and in every age, the priest has been hostile to liberty. He is always in alliance with the despot, abetting his abuses in return for protection for to his own. Mm. Hostile to liberty. Yeah. Yes. So. As much as things have changed from them to now, that's one thing that hasn't changed. Even today, religion is hostile to liberty. You want to? You're that, gay. You want to get married? Christians have something to say about that. Your yeah, we liberty. don't even. 
we don't even we could we could go down the line have a linear timeline that oh you're a, you're a Christian and your Christianity how was it how was it uh, harmful to liberty in the early days of our of our republic well slavery it was fundamentalist Christians who were using the Bible to justify owning slaves and their treatment of said slaves a little later in the civil rights movement the same fundamentalist type Christians were using the Bible to justify their treatment of blacks. And now today, like you said, gay rights. Yes, they're they're infringing on the on the 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 liberties and freedoms that should be attributed to every free thinking person uh who who lives in this country who's has is is blessed for lack of a better term enough to be born in this awesome country. Two people, two thinking adults who want to make a choice to be together, they have every right to be together and religion is hostile and infr- yeah. and tries to infringe and impose its will upon that basic liberty and it's 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 a terrible terrible thing to to strip away liberty from a human being but it's it's not even the liberty of individual it's the liberty of science and progress which is a little bit more abstract but stem cell research many many science advances that we we're living in a many and not quite as, as as drastic, but a many dark ages were being held back from progress from the likes by the likes of you know Louis Gohmert and Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed and John Hagee and Kevin Swanson and I'm running out of breath otherwise I would continue on. That's super impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I would. I by would... the way, that's that's completely without notes. That's just off the top of my stupid head. Yes. So. Very impressive. <laughs> I would love to see where, where we would be without the dark ages and where we would be even now uh, with regard to scientific forward progression. And, and here's where we come into this, this separation um, again and how important it is. Uh, it is, it is halting the, these progressions because these church groups, uh, the, like the Christian coalition, for example, they have so much goddamn money and they're a special interest. So they pour this money into these campaigns, and so these politicians kowtow to what some of these fuckers want. And in that regard, they, they uh, push through. Um, it's not even the fact that they are pouring money in to influence policy based on giving politicians money. It's if they can get enough congressmen to vote a certain way, or if they put enough commercials on the TV, it it's this haze, it's this haze of opium that kind of convinces people that, oh, well, I guess everybody else thinks that way too. And people, you know, generally people are fucking sheep. They're going to go the way, you know, there's been those psychological experiments where they have people walk into an elevator and everybody's facing the wall, not facing the right way. And most people face the way the other, the wrong way that everybody's (laughs) facing because they're fucking sheep. Well, so what happens is they pour a bunch of they put a bunch of commercials on TV, prop 8, prop 8, prop 8, anti-gay marriage, anti-gay marriage, and even in a state like California, you know, 6 years ago, they put this to the vote or however long ago it was, and 67% of California voted against gay marriage in goddamn California. And that's because the money and the TV ads and they put out this impression that that that's what everybody your neighbor thinks this and his neighbor thinks that so you should think that and 
that is that's the mechanism by which this works. The church is influencing policy, policy that affects people's basic liberties and basic rights. And then that's the point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fucking bullshit, man. Well, we're we're slowly coming to an end here. And by the way, there was an almost endless litany of of literature and quotes and and uh, stuff that I could be reading from right now to display and and get across the understanding that Thomas Jefferson doesn't think that the wall between church and state is a one-way wall. Uh, he says that my opinion is there would have never been an infidel if there had never been a priest. Simplicity in its truest form and fucking spot on. Absolutely correct. Yeah, how good would we how how good of a place would we be in uh without the priest telling us that we're infidels? Would that <laughs> Well, look at it you could even take it to the larger point that without without uh, the devil, oh, oh, there would be no devil if there was no God. Yeah, there would be no sin. There would be no sinner. There would be no guilt. There would be no uh, stymieing of forward progression without without the priests uh, who, yeah. who created. And, and, priest, and by priest, we mean pastor. We mean televangelist. We mean preacher. That long list. Uh, Reverend. Uh, that, that long list of knuckleheads I just named. Um, and I'm not uh, Will from Goodwill Hunting. I can't go through his fucking twelve brothers and sisters, uh, just like he did in the same order. I can't do it again. But uh, we wouldn't have those ass if we didn't have those assholes. We wouldn't have some of the bullshit that we have, such as we wouldn't have an argument over gay marriage if we didn't have the fairy tales of Leviticus. It just wouldn't be. No. I would be it might be it might be worth putting up onto the Facebook page later too. There's a there's a great graph that shows how how humanity and how uh science and reason were progressing in history and then in the dark ages, which I think it's apropos to talk about, you know, that we're this is a mini dark ages for us. And then when the dark ages came uh came along, it just bottomed out. Bottomed out, man. We stopped moving along. And we've slowly been trying to pull ourselves up out of this, but here we are again in the freest, most uh, supposed best country in the world, and we're being overrun with uh, with Christian ideologies. Yeah, it's a weird – it's an odd thing. I saw it. I don't know if it was Ryan Bell who posted it or if it was Shermer, but they, they said that uh, – Posted a yeah it was Ryan Bell and it was a it was a, one of those infographs and all these different countries that don't believe in God and they're super advanced countries Sweden and China and you know there's shitty stuff that goes on everywhere but advanced technologically and then Australia and the United States are still clinging to religion and there are also two countries that academically are starting to hit the wall. And the curve is starting – we're not on the upswing anymore. We're being surpassed by a lot of different nations because it's countries like U uh, Ghana and Uganda and Somalia and Sudan. And it's countries that are in peril that believe in God. It's not advanced right. countries who are on the upswing. A lot of so, countries with theocratic roots and uh, yeah, influences. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and, and the despots. 
to put it in the words of Thomas Jefferson. So I have two more quotes here, and maybe we should have started with these two quotes because the, this segment would have been about fucking five minutes had we done this. <laughs> but it, he says, Christianity neither is nor ever was part of the common law. He wrote this to Dr. Thomas Cooper on February 10th, 1814. So if you're going to take anything away from this, it would be these last two quotes. Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of the common law. And then we're going to wrap it up with this. We'll, we'll discuss it after I read this. But this is about as poignant as it gets where it relates to the mind of Thomas Jefferson, the man who coined the phrase, the separation of church and state. He says, where the preamble declares that coercion is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, an amendment was proposed by inserting Jesus Christ so that it would read, a departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. The insertion was rejected by the majority in proof that they meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection that the Jew and Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu and the infidel of every denomination. That is awesome. He's saying, this is in his autobiography in reference to the, the Virginia Act for Religious Freedom, that the reason we need separation of church and state is to protect every one of those different groups from the other. It's perfect. It's, it's absolutely profound. So, Louis Gomart, if I'm sure you're not listening to this because you probably can't get a fucking smartphone to work to listen to a podcast, but <laughs> if you're listening or if someone is listening who knows the, the rapidly denigrating brain-functioning uh, Louis Gomart, let him know that his one-walled approach to church and state isn't, isn't going to work. And it's not just me saying it. It's Thomas Jefferson. I can understand someone not wanting to take my word for it, but take it from Thomas Jefferson, who's got the brains of 12 men. He's the Samson of brains. That dude just just fucking annihilated all of what that guy said with the jawbone of an ass right now. He, he I mean, he's obviously going down in history as someone who has a, a phenomenal impact on millions and hundreds of millions and billions of people. He wrote at 33, the same age that Jesus allegedly was killed, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Oh, God. At 33, what have you done with your life, Brett? <laughs> well, currently I'm sitting in my office with my feet up. <laughs> I mean – So nothing. He, this, he clearly had a mind for this. God, he, 33. He, he will have impacted by the time in 2,000 years. Give this guy 2,000 years, and he – because I think in 2,000 years Christianity will be done. It will be gone. Thomas Jefferson will have impacted positively more people than Christ. Mark, I mean, when when like the space when the space aliens come down and they and they excavate and they find someone's iPod and they listen to this episode, they'll be like, "Holy shit, this guy was a prophet." He knew Thomas Jefferson was going to be lauded with praise, and he's has they have statues to to him. Uh, they're going to find statues to him all over the world. Yeah, I'm going a little off. No, I I, 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 <laughs> I like it though. 
and it's he's definitely he's definitely worthy uh, of that kind of exaggerated praise um, for sure. He's yeah. uh, 33 years old. Yeah, he was 33. What a god! What a fucking genius that guy was. What a prick. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> like him anymore. Actually, more proof. More proof. There is no god. <laughs> so on one of these upcoming episodes, we'll have to talk about my Brad Pitt theory about God. But <laughs> for now, for now, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, Louis Gomart, we're going to put his information on the Facebook page. I would encourage everybody to write, call, email, and ask him exactly what he meant by his one-walled version of the separation of church and state. So for Brett McAfee, I'm Jesse, and this has been the Religious Roundup. All right, everybody. Well, with that, we are going to wrap it up here. We want to remind you always to give us a call, 657-464-7609. I'd love a little dissent on the show since it's just me being right all the time. (laughs) Uh, There's iTunes. Rate and review us on iTunes. Get us on Facebook and on the Twitters. As always, we appreciate you listening. Tell your friends and neighbors. Take out ads in all your local newspapers. Spread the word. We appreciate it. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore. You are listening to I Doubt It. A one-way wall.